Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, I'm joined by a good friend and co-worker of mine, Jake Rausch, and uh, Jake has been working at P3. Now, how long have you been working at P3 for? Two years as of two weeks ago. So you're a savvy vet at this point. I am a savvy not vet. <laughs> two, two years is a, it's been a long time. Um, uh, yeah, man, and we've been talking about getting you on the show for a while. I feel like a lot of the shows I do, we don't focus so much on the the data and research side. And now that I've been here for a little while and feel a little more comfortable with it, it's definitely a route. Like I want to take the show and get some, some like, like-minded guests on in that sense. And what better place to start than here at P3, right? We have some, we have some minds here, including your own. So <laughs> a lot of minds and a lot of data. So definitely not, <laughs> not a bad place to start. Yeah, man. So, um, before we dive into some of the topics I wanted to touch on today, uh, just kind of give the, the listeners a little bit of background about like where you did some of your education, what you've been doing before P3, what led you to P3, what some of your interests are, et cetera. For sure. Um, yeah, so I, again, been here for about two years. Before that, I did my undergrad and grad work at the University of Tampa and was there for five years. And pretty much from day one, I just hopped in the human performance lab and got involved in research there. I was fortunate enough that it was a productive lab, so I got a lot of experience in different types of research projects from different types of nutrition intervention, supplement studies, and, and strength training studies towards the last couple of years. While I was there, I also did a couple you know, physical therapy internships, private sector, and then the last two years, I was fortunate enough to be able to intern with the New York Yankees sports science uh, department as they were just down the road there, so kind of bounced around a little bit. That's awesome. Um, what kind of what direction did you take? And we're going to talk about some of the papers you've, you've written about here in a minute. But where where did you kind of gravitate towards with all that? Like, obviously, you get a ton of different, like you just said, a ton of different research experiences. What kind of did you end up gravitating towards? I think you know, up until my junior year, freshman year, and sophomore year, it was just getting exposure to different types of research, and I was trying <clears> to figure out what interests me the most. And the first light bulb moment for me was just diving into the different research on periodization. Uh, it was just fascinating to me, you know, manipulating certain variables to get an outcome, and it was you know a big learning curve for me because there was definitely a time in my young research career where I thought. If it's published, it's fact. And the first like 10 research studies I saw were like all on linear periodization. So in my mind, I'm like, this is just a genius way to program athletes. You start with this, this work capacity phase, and then you gradually you know, decrease the volume as you increase intensity. And I was like, wait a minute, here's daily undulating periodization. So that was like a, you know, seeing how you, you know, Research is not fact, and that often there's conflicting studies was was one of the first light bulb moments for me. But definitely, you know, periodization was one of the first areas I wanted to research. Was that kind of some of the focus on some of the first papers you wrote, or like, yeah, like kind of where did you did that where you started, or definitely no, hundred percent. We the first paper I ever did, we looked at this concept called autoregulatory periodization. You know, as I got the end of you know reading as much as I could on what was out in the periodization literature. I became fascinated with this concept of individualizing training prescription on a, a day-to-day base basis based off of how the athlete was responding. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with my advisors at the time and we were trying to come up with a study where we could investigate this further because you know this is about six years ago and autoregulation is a very popular word tossed around the SNC literature now. 
at the time there was only about three or four papers that were done with there. And I remember this one moment where I have all the literature reviewed on the board and I have like a marker in my hand that I'm explaining ideas to my advisors. And I've been at this, you know, for weeks. And then uh, my advisor at the time, or you know, senior advisor, Carlos Ugrinovich was looking at me like, Jake, you're looking at this the wrong way. So all of the available research was manipulating different forms of volume and intensity. So we were, you know, Brian Mann had one of the staple papers on autoregulation where mm -hmm. the based off of the load that you were capable of, you know, how many reps you were able to do and your previous set determined the load you started with like the next a time. APRE, right? Yeah, yeah. APRE. Yeah. So there was different, you know, forms of manipulating volume intensity. He said, manipulate a different variable. So what we ended up doing was we did auto-regulating exercise selection. So we gave people the opportunity to select exercises that they felt most comfortable performing. And we wanted to see if after eight weeks, if you selected the exercise that you just, you know, whether it was a personal favorite or one that you just felt better performing that day, if that improved your adaptations over an eight week period. And what did you guys find? So we found that the flexible group, again, eight weeks of training three times a week, they tended to select more compound movements. So over the course of eight weeks, you know, on their upper body days, they had the options of, you know, pull-ups, bench press, and flies, and, you know, compound to more single joint exercises. Mm -hmm. And they picked more compound movements, so they ended up having higher training loads over the eight weeks, but they also put on more muscle mass and got stronger. Yeah. So that yeah. was, you know. I, I think too, like, I don't know if you looked at this in the study, but it kind of is interesting to me. It's like freedom of choice is a big deal towards making gains in a lot of cases. Like we have some athletes in here, like on the amateur side, I feel like that are going to do their thing no matter what when they leave here. Like if they have something they like to do, and we could fight with them all day about it because we think it might not be great for their performance. But if we are able to maybe win that battle, let's say, but in a manner where we just kind of railroad what they want, I think that could probably have some sort of negative impact, at least like from a, like a psychological perspective for that person. So I think freedom to choose is probably quite helpful in a training program as long as it's not the worst choice ever. You know, yeah. <laughs> so. It's got to be a balance. And I feel like everyone who's followed a program and created their program before where there's definitely something nice about having a sheet of paper in front of you where like you don't have to think about anything and you sure. just do it. But then there's also times where it's like, you know you had a bad workout and that wasn't the lift or the intensity that you were supposed to do that day. And I think, you know, the more experienced you are, the better you can auto-regulate for yourself. But for sure, for amateurs, you know, they need our experience. It becomes a different, it becomes a different thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I do like the concept of auto-regulation though, particularly you mentioned linear periodization. I think the, the more I've delved into strength and conditioning, like linear periodization is just such a foundational piece of Eastern block training where you lived in a concentration camp and <laughs> trained and were on steroids all the time. Yeah. And like, and all you did was that. And a lot of these people are actually weightlifters, right? Doing it or individual sport athletes where it's very objective, whether or not success is being achieved because we're seeing it on a stopwatch, the distance is shot, shot put is thrown or something like that. Yeah. Like that's where a lot of that, like culturally and historically derived from. And like here we are not dealing with the same kind of like ultimate control over these athletes, you know? For sure. I think that that's the key where it's the, you look at the situation you're trying to apply something like that and if you're 
you know, if you're a collegiate strength coach and you have an eight-week in-season training block with him, you don't have a full macro cycle to build these, you know, yeah. work capacity and then trend. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. I think in all research, it has to be you, you take what is interesting or what the data shows, but you have to make it fit, you know, your day-to-day life. For sure. Um, now, when you got here to P3... How familiar with you with like obviously things are pretty concurrent here. We're training multiple qualities at once a lot of times. Um, was that kind of a shock to the system for you or something you were already familiar with? Like what were your thoughts coming into that kind of model? So I was fortunate. So Justin Thiel, who was the head strength coach at University of Tampa when I was there, he was very open to collaborating on research projects with us. And he implemented a similar style of training where it was, you know, a strength movement followed by a power movement mm-hmm. um, and then training was individualized accordingly. So I had some exposure to it, but you know, the, the biggest shock to me here was seeing, you know, the biomechanics side of things and seeing how an assessment leads to training recommendations and then watching those training recommendations be input on the floor and seeing how everything kind of comes full circle. Yeah. Was that was the you know, I'm, I'm still learning a lot on that side yeah. of things. So coming coming into P3, like, were you, did you come in on the strength side as an intern? Or? Yeah. Okay. So I came in, at, they posted an internship opportunity, and I knew I was lacking, you know, biomechanics experience. And I knew that was one hole in my game and just something I was just genuinely interested in. And I saw the opportunity and I kind of like in the email was like sports science internship. And they were like, no, this is a strength and conditioning internship. So I was like, you know, if I'm there, I'll be able to learn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I started off on the floor and then now I'm kind of a little bit of a hybrid. Yeah, doing doing both. And um, yeah, I, I think what was kind of your big takeaways like first coming in then? What was what were some things that really struck you as like, oh, that's something I haven't seen before. Like this is something that really gets me fired up to like think about, you know, doing another paper on or something like that. I think there's, you know, a lot of specific key examples of very like, you know, light bulb moments of things I've wanted to research or look into further. But I think, you know, the first thing I saw here was like, they do a good job taking care of athletes. And I feel like I can still say that, you know, being the relative new guy on staff. Well, where... that's not true anymore. Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the newest, but still, I mean, you know, P3's been here for, for a long time, but they, the process of going through the assessment and the injury history and the qualities they're able to identify and then how they use that information and directly train those qualities specific to each athlete. I I just, I think they do a good job. And I've been in other performance facilities that I don't think have run as cleanly. And, you know, that was probably my initial takeaway is that Mm -hmm. they're just very good practitioners and the athletes come and they get better. Yeah. I, I, I kind of see it as the same way, to be honest. Like, I came in with like a particular lens on a lot of things and this was like a new lens for me in a lot of ways here. Um, but the di- I think the biggest difference was is like, I don't really care if we see things a little bit differently, maybe our interpretation, what we're seeing, but the way you guys are logging and calculating and, and pu- I guess putting together all of this data in such a way, nobody's doing this. Like, it's very impressive, you know? And like, it's giving, it's before where I felt like I have a good feel on this in my head based on some things that I'm seeing. And and I think the art of coaching is important, but like my process wasn't the same. Now I have like a much better process when we have someone come through that I'm responsible for. Now, like I feel a lot more confident in some of the choices that I'm making because of the assessment. Yeah. 
The hundred percent, and that's I mean the, you know, there's the verbiage that is constantly tossed around P three, but you know, it's our goal to be able to provide a closed loop system. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look in that, it's you assess the athlete and you find out their needs and their different qualities that they're coming in with. You train the athlete based off of those needs, and then you track how you are training them. You test them again. And then you're able to see, did they get better at the qualities that we were trying to train? If yes, by how much? And then you're able to look at, you know, what did you do on the floor that led to this response? Mm -hmm. And then you tweak it. And then athlete by athlete, you just start to build this database. And now you're able to connect the dots between athletes. When you see a need, you can start to piece together, I think, these are certain exercises that tend to work for these needs. And that's the you know ultimate goal is to be able to help their needs be improved. Yeah. Yeah. I, now it is interesting, like on that note, because at the end of the day, strength conditioning is general preparation for the most part. I mean, we do a few things here that I think are special and like a little more specific than other places would, but like it's still general. Um, and I'm sure like, you know, with, with us here and everything like that, even myself, like, you know, sometimes there's non-responders to certain things and not. So how far down the path of like, these are the things we use to fix this thing. And do you think this can go until we hit like a limitation, you know, cause there's plenty of studies out there that show like we ran 500 people through the same thing and we saw a wide range of responses from people about you know, this, that, and the other training style. Yeah. I mean, I think that's before we dive into where I think we can go. I think that's one thing that I learned later on that I think is very important for people to understand. It's like most <clears throat> research studies, you're looking at group averages. And I can tell you from, from personal example, I've run a couple myself where even if one group responds better, so our auto-regulated condition, on average, they put on more muscle group, but there's people in both groups who had positive and negative responses. Exactly, yeah. So it's like, there's some people in the fixed condition who put on more muscle mass than subjects in the autoregulated condition. Mm-hmm. And I think the, as a research as a whole, you have to be aware that for most studies, especially strength training studies, you are just looking at the group response on average. I think we're moving towards this individualized analysis. Yeah. And a lot of training <clears throat> studies, what you'll see now is instead of just like reporting a mean and standard deviation, they have these individual data plots where you see every subject's response. Oh, wow. And it just, it helps you get a better understanding of, you know, the group response, but also the individual response. Yeah. And I guess now, you know, trying to tie that back in full circle to where we are with our system, it's the goal to be able to have a, you know, training history of, you know, if, if we have, 500 athletes that trained here for at least six to eight weeks and we have the exercises, the frequency and the intensities at which they were performed and which needs we were trying to develop through these exercises. And then we see how each athlete responded to that. I would love to be able to say that we can come up with a series of exercises that tend to be the most effective for each need. But at the same time, you have to realize like, every athlete comes in here in a different exactly. phase. Every yeah. athlete's yeah. coming in a, with a different strength training foundation and some athletes are gonna respond better. And some athletes are, you know, if, if hip mobility or, or general strength, whatever the need is, like some athletes are at the 99 percentile of what they're gonna get. 
So it's difficult where if you have an amateur athlete or a professional athlete who doesn't have an extensive strength training background, you almost can't really compare their gains compared to 100%, someone yeah. who's been here for yeah. 10 years. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I feel like we're as practitioners, we're always going to miss sometimes, but I feel like this is so invasive, like our process here. The, the chances of missing are much less. You also catch your miss much earlier and you can adjust as needed because of that. Yeah. You know? I think that's key. Being able to, you know, study your misses harder yeah. than than your gains. Where yeah. it's like, you have an athlete for eight weeks and, and their needs didn't improve. Now you have, you know, a, a breadcrumb trail to see, okay, this just didn't seem to fit the bill. How can we get better? And, you know, sometimes there's just things that are out of your control. Where yeah, they're, they're doing 100%, because there are a lot of other factors outside... We, I talk about this a lot on the show with all the guests that I bring on, but there's always a lot of other factors going on outside of the training realm, like, and those can certainly be debilitating. But that's where, like, I think you mentioned it, we take care of our athletes here. And, like, we're, we try to be as involved as possible in the other factors without being heavy-handed, of course, but we try to be at least aware of those factors and provide guidance when needed. And I don't think a lot of places do that still. Yeah, I mean, it's... I think you also have to look at the context of, like, where we operate within this industry. So we're fortunate enough to be in the private sector where if an athlete comes to us in their own volition for, you know, a six to eight week training block, it's usually their off season and we usually have them, you know, three or four times a week for two hours and we don't have to worry about their six other on-court practices mm -hmm. that week mm -hmm. where if you're in a team setting totally different ball game yeah, yeah. The, the priorities have shifted completely exactly yeah <laughs> so i think it's a pro on our sense where it's we can do more in the gym because that is typically their main focus but our goal is to make these individuals better athletes so sometimes i feel that we lack a vital component of watching how they move on the court or seeing what they need to get better at as a basketball player. So yeah. it's kind of give and take there. Well, that's, I wasn't going to transition this to later, but this seems a good time to talk about it. Um, that's kind of what you're focusing on now, isn't it? Uh, that transfer over to, to gameplay. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that's where, you know, a lot of sports scientists are going. Mm -hmm. It's not a novel concept, but the end goal is to be able to have our training make these individuals better athletes you know i think especially for us we sometimes get bogged down in the metrics where it's like did we improve this athlete's relative concentric force production yeah. did their <laughs> yeah. eccentric breaking ability get better and it's a great thing to measure and it's a great thing to look at but what needs to happen is the athlete needs to be a better basketball player on the court so one of the things we're trying to do now and you know, with the advancement of all these different technologies where you can measure performance on court, you have these different GPS units, optical tracking systems. We're trying to slowly, you know, step out of our comfort zone from the lab setting and start to measure qualities on court so we can more effectively transfer the adaptations from the gym to athletic performance. How do you measure some of that? Like for us, obviously in the lab, we're I agree with you. Like we're we're seeing some changing and underlying metrics, but in the context of counter movement jump, right? In most cases, yeah. And well, I think that's obviously a nice starting point, and it feel it feels like we can do quite a bit with that in the lab setting. 
how, what do we measure? What are you looking to measure on the court when you get out there? Like, what can be measured? How can we measure it accurately? It's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very muddy. I don't have the answers. I can tell you <laughs> how I am. We're currently trying. Yeah, what's your to thought process right it? now? I know it's a, it's a work in progress, so obviously. So, the end goal, your measurement has to be in game performance. Mm-hmm. So, what's difficult for basketball, and this is something that you know, my advisors have been telling me on, on the research side of things where basketball physical com- capabilities is a, is a big component of it, but there's also a lot of factors that aren't directly, re- like there's a lot of performance factors that aren't directly related to an athlete's ability to accelerate, decelerate, and change direction. Where there's cognitive components, there's different styles of gameplay, but ultimately you want to measure that athlete's athleticism while they're in a game. Like mm-hmm. That has to be the reference point that you work back from. So best case scenario, whether it's through, you know, GPS sensors that have, you know, accelerometers and gyroscopes in them where you put them in a live game setting and you collect enough data, whether it's practice data or in-game data, where you can develop a fingerprint of this athlete's acceleration profile mm-hmm. in, you know, whether it's over a course of a game or specific drills, put them through an intervention and see if your intervention actually improve those qualities that you're trying to develop on mm-hmm. court. Mm-hmm. And my intervention, do you mean like a, a strength and conditioning intervention or? Yeah, we, I'd love to dive into this more in detail, but you know, unfortunately, like this is what we're trying to do with, with some active research projects. So mm-hmm. I don't know how. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I hate to do that. I think my advisors and, you know, everyone at P3 will tell you, like, I always am on like, I don't want to keep anything you know, to myself, I'm all about collaboration and sharing ideas, but this is just like an active project where I sure, the specifics, absolutely. but I, yeah. I can talk conceptually for days and yeah, I'm yeah. happy to do that. What was your, what was your question? Oh no. no okay. What it was. Oh, what was the intervention? Okay. Exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, that's not terrible, but yeah, it's like if you, if there's a quality you want to develop on an athlete, if mm-hmm. you're, if you have a basketball player and you think he lacks, you know, top end acceleration, or you think he, you know, can't change direction efficiently. Whatever intervention you want to apply, whether it's something in the gym, whether it's specific focus, technical and tactical work on the basketball court, ultimately you want to provide that intervention and then find drills that you can consistently measure that quality. I see. No, that makes a ton of sense. I like that a lot. Um, Yeah, at this point, I feel like stuff like that is so subjective. Like we do some stuff in the gym that addresses a particular need in that sense like let's say like maybe like change direction in a lateral slide like one side or the other like okay this is stacking up to look a lot better maybe we've got some of this on film looks a lot better but that, again that's in this setting yeah the environment is completely different when you're in a game and and a lot of times i sometimes wonder it's like okay we've changed like this particular plant angle or whatever then you go watch him in the game you're like well he did what he did yeah. <laughs> he did exactly what i told him not to yeah but it still worked for him you know so that's the other thing it's like is what we're doing maybe the best performance like that we're coaching or is that not the best performance for this guy? Like, you know, is not that, is that not, is that not the best strategy for him? You know? And it's like, what qualities do you want to change in regards to how they move and what do you not? Cause if you, you know, if you focus on someone's running mechanics or their, their shin angles to a certain point where it's like, if that's so uncomfortable for them, a, they're probably not going to do it or B, are you going to potentially put them at a greater risk for injury just because 
exactly from how they do it. You've given them a different, you give them something different for their system to work with, and then you're asking them to do it at a really high level of competition. Like, good luck with that, you yeah. know, after they've been doing it another way for 20 years. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's that's such a there's just so many layers and factors that play into that. It's going to be interesting. I can't wait to see yeah. kind of where that goes. Uh, I'm, I'm excited as well. And, you know, we have a great group of, you know, obviously everyone in P3 is a part of the project and we have some collaborators and just a lot of bright minds where, you know, I like projects that excite me and whenever I'm the dumbest person in the room, which is very frequently, I'm a very happy, happy camper. So I'm learning a lot through this process and uh, yeah, I'm cannot wait to talk more openly about yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, for sure. When it comes out, well, you do have another, another paper that was recently published congrats by the way thank the, you uh, very much the jump the kind of jump clusters and um i really enjoyed that that's one of the more favorite like fun ones i've read in quite some time i really like bucketing people i, I i'm a big fan of that even though, <laughs> even though it, i'm sure it has its downsides i really do like to get a nice clear picture of certain archetypes and where it can lead so um for those that haven't read it and are listening um kind of take me through like maybe the the, the invention of that idea the process and then kind of what you discovered for sure. We, so we have this, you know, MBA database of about, you know, I think over a thousand assessments of the counter movement jump. And one of the things that everyone's trying to improve or just focus on is, is, you know, jump height and jump performance. And it's, you know, the CMJ is one of the most studied movements in all of the biomechanics. For sure. And we know from a physics perspective, that the total movement impulse is likely, you know, the strongest factor for jump height. Mm -hmm. But the way that that impulse is generated is very different from athlete to athlete. And when you study these, you know, other metrics like concentric force production and, you know, eccentric force production and different flexion and extension velocities, when the literature tries to see that what those other variables have an impact on jump height, like, how much do they actually impact the end result? There's typically these single group analyses. So things get muddied and things aren't clear. And then you look at all these papers and you're like, what matters for jump performance? And they all just say peak power and force production, where it's like, I want more than that. So what a recent trend in the literature has been, has been analyzing athletes for how they jump because everyone does it so differently. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's factoring the different movement strategies and seeing how that mm -hmm. impacts actual jump performance. And that's, you know, that was an insight that P3 had. And, and, you know, before research was even a question for them, it was just, you know, an, an anecdotal understanding where it's like, you watch athletes jump for 15 years and you have all these videos and it's like every single athlete jumps very differently. Yeah. So our goal was we wanted to, provide um, you know a cluster analysis with different variables to see if it could give us you know strong clusters of how athletes jumped and if they jumped differently and if there was enough similarities in how differently they jumped if that makes sense it does yes where I do, one second yeah and this is a little bit out of left field but you talked about like total movement impulse being the the strongest indicator for yeah. jump height um and you were saying most of the research was just looking at basic like force production. So they, a lot of these papers just not take into account like the time element of it. Because yeah, I know you mentioned also like just kinemat what was happening kinematically as well. Yeah. But just time as well. Uh, I mean, there's hundreds of papers on the camera jump where all of these variables have been looked at in the past. Okay. Where total movement time has definitely definitely been studied. Um, 
but it's not one of the variables that is typically looked at in regards to how it affects jump height. And it can, I would imagine. It definitely can. Yeah. But typically, you know, it's, you know, what we found is, you know, you could produce a greater impulse through more force over a shorter period of time, or you could, what some people, how they generate Standard their high jumps. Yeah, of time that it, you can produce the force, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Some people increase their impulse by increasing the amount of force over a longer period of time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, uh, what was, where were we looking that was that? that was kind of more what I was looking okay. for. And then you were getting ready, sorry to cut you off there, no but we were getting ready to go into um, the actual look at like the clusters and the, the process of the project. Okay, yeah. So again, the main question was, could we through a cluster analysis identify different eccentric movement strategies? So specifically in that lowering phase, because we know that, you know, that eccentric phase, that downward phase, you know, ultimately produces the concentric outcomes. We want to see in this eccentric phase, are there consistent differences between athletes that could uh, ultimately provide us insights into if different movement strategies affect these kinetic outcomes. And ultimately what we ended up finding is we have the train passing. Dude, this is a record for the amount of trains passing through Santa Barbara. <laughs> no, this is very normal. We, uh, we have inter uh, meetings in here all the time, and we have to just mute it where, when they come. Um, but ultimately, so we, we fed. We, first, we wanted to see which of the eccentric variables created the most stable clusters. Because obviously, in the eccentric phase, you have the range of motion traveled at each joint, and you have the rate of that was traveled at each joint. So initially we said, here are, you know, here's average flexion velocity, here's maximum flexion velocity, here's total range of motion, here's, you know, delta, here's peak flexion. And what ended up happening was delta, so essentially total range of motion from the entire duration of the eccentric phase was the best variable to explain the differences between clusters. And what delta range of motion in all joints Yes, okay. yeah, so at the hip ankle knee, everything okay. is hip okay. ankle knee. That's a great point. And what we ended up finding is that we had a, so, I mean, what's fascinating to me about this cluster analysis is like, you're kind of learning from each other, where mm -hmm. the analysis side of things is just saying like, hey, something about these athletes is very similar in each of these clusters. And then it was up to us to interpret that data and sort of say, all right, like, we had to, you know, work together and dance with this, you know, cluster analysis. And when we looked at it, what we found is that one of the clusters was stiff flexors where they traveled through the least amount of range compared to everyone. And you look at these videos and it's crazy where it's like they barely go through any flexion and they just pop out of there. You know, so you would say like if we're if we were looking at like stiffness on that person, like yeah. measuring stiffness, that'd be like the displacement's like minimal. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. You know, on the opposite side of the spectrum, we have these hyperflexors where they traveled through an extensive range of motion at the hip, ankle, and knee joint. And you know, by extensive, I just mean above average compared to the entire database. And the third cluster was hip flexors where they traveled through average ranges of motion at the ankle and knee joint during flexion, but a greater range of motion at the hip joint. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of just unique just to see so much forward hip flexion. Yeah. And what we found is that each cluster was able to achieve similar jump heights, which was, you know, one of the main findings. But these underlying kinetic and kinematic variables were drastically different between athletes. 
uh, the jump heights were the same in terms like of on average between all the groups. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. okay, that's that's very interesting. Now, um, sorry to bring it back to the time thing. I might be harping on it for no reason. No. But so if you compared your stiff flexors to your hyper flexors, you'd be spending the stiff flexors would be spending a lot less time on the ground, right? For sure. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. That was typically what you were seeing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So okay. we found the stiff flexors have the shortest <clears throat> total movement time and highest concentric force production, and the Hyperflexors had the second longest total movement time, and they had lower uh, relative, you know, force outputs, but greater extension velocities. So they're making up for it with how quickly they were, like kinematically, yeah. doing some of the things. Exactly. Okay. So I got flack for it, and not you know, greater eccentric force though. Not greater eccentric. Really force, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So Eric, our director of biomechanics, he, you know, I saw this as, you know. Short range of motion, high force production, you know, greater force production over a shorter period of force application. Mm -hmm. That's how they got their high impulse. I see the hyperflexors as having a more efficient utilization of the stretch shortening cycle where they're just getting more out of that. And that's what resulted in them being able to achieve the similar jump heights. Got you. But they also ended up having, you know, less force production but over a longer period of force application, resulting in similar impulses. So it could also be that. Yeah. Okay. No, no, and I think they, they, you know, you don't get one without the other, but. Okay, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I that's just true, think yeah. They are relying more on the stretch shortening cycle, um, but you know, that's definitely up for debate. That's more of a personal. So the, the hip flexors went through the most range though? No, hip flexors, just at the hip joint. Okay. Average ankle and knee flexion, most range of motion at the hip, and they had the longest total movement time. I got you. Yeah, and that would make sense too. Like that that process of getting the hips back and everything seems like a very arduous, yeah. <laughs> arduous endeavor. So. And the the one thing with the hip flexors that was interesting is they were composed of more of our big men, mm -hmm. so they had to just control a greater amount of mass at at the trunk area, and I think that may have been why it took them so much time. But it was you know I don't necessarily know why. They just, they you know, it's their go-to strategy to flex so much at the hip. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, can you, I don't know if you're allowed to do this or not, any players in particular that kind of fit into each one? And you can, it doesn't even necessarily be names, but like types of players that would fit into each one. I, you, like you said, big men would be in the hip flexors. What about the other two? Were there any like distinctive ways to kind of like see that? I don't think I can, you know, just from a research standpoint, say the uh, any of the specific athletes who were in there, but one athlete who I can say because was posted on our Instagram account, um, who was actually you know retrospectively fit into the cluster where he wasn't in the study. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. Miles Turner, um, we recently yeah. did a post on him. He was you know ironically enough a big man, but he was a stiff flexor. Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So he didn't flex extensively yeah. at the hip, but he traveled through a short range of motion. Um, and one thing that we're seeing with him and, you know, one of the advantageous aspects of being a stiff flexor, you know, you know, from just a jumping performance standpoint, you can look at it and say these movement strategies don't matter because they're all achieving similar jump heights. But again, going back to where we were in the beginning of the conversation, they're athletes and factors like time and the amount of time you have on the floor to get to a certain position does have a, a, an impact. Yeah. So. For someone like Miles, who is already close to the basket, if he can get there higher, 
in the shortest period of time, he's going to be in a position to you know block more shots yeah. more effectively. Yeah, and, and imagine that. Look what he's doing this year. Yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're seeing that, that, that play out. But that's kind of where we're looking to go with this. So um, any like training insights you have on that? Yeah. So I, I you could take it both ways. Where one, I think the time uh, perspective is an important one. So you have your stiff flexors who can get to these high outputs in the shortest period of time. And you have your hyperflexors and the hip flexors who can get there, but they take a longer period of time. I think as a strength coach, just being aware of that, where if you have an athlete and you watch them jump and you're just like, you know what, it's kind of like what we're going through now with, with one of your athletes you're mm-hmm. working with, you know, seeing if they can develop the ability to just produce force faster, I think is something that you could work on in training. And if you think that's a detriment for the athlete, then maybe your hyperflexors and your hip flexors, you would want to know have them do that in training another potential recommendation and again we didn't investigate different training strategies yeah. so we can't say anything yeah. uh you know 100 fact but when you look at the kinetic differences your stiff flexors they have greater force outputs and lower extension velocities your hyperflexors they have lower force outputs and higher extension velocities as a strength coach you can then decide do I want to double down and develop the quality that this athlete is already very good at? Do I want to give my stiff flexor more force production exercises and see if he can just continue to use his superpower and get better? Or do I want to train the opposite quality? Do I want to do more plyometric exercises that have them go through more range of motion and you know develop this transfer of energy more yeah. efficiently? So I think it's you know not completely fleshed out yet, but I would err on the side of potentially training the opposite quality more for the hyperflexors. I think they're being you know, if you can improve your ability to produce force, I think across the board that's better. And but when we look at the predictor variables for jump height, concentric force production and knee extension velocity were consistent between clusters. So it doesn't matter what cluster you're in. If you improve those qualities, you're going to you're going to be better at a vertical exactly jump. Yeah, and that's that's interesting because I know like the little in-house study I did kind of showed like our our front squat potentially did something to improve like our trap bar our trap bar jump again not a knee extension velocity metric but maybe those things potentially go hand in hand similar to like what uh, one of our other coaches studies with the um, with the K box seeing it's like hip extension velocity improve uh, with the K box. I mean. That's kind of interesting too. Just kind of goes gives you like maybe a little more insight even on that. Like, can we improve some of those like kinematic variables? For sure. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. That's really good, man. Um, I, I'm curious. This is a bit of a tangent. Um, we talked about like force production and like that. We, I feel like as strength coaches, we get very focused on that. Either force production or like the rate of it. Right? Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if you have any insight in this or not, but like I'm looking at a lot of like a lot of sprint research right now, and it. it for a lot of people, it seems to be coming down to the same thing. They're all just like force production. And, you know, ironically, similar to like lifting weights, I think sprinting in and of itself is a skill. And there's a lot of other like technical elements that go into sprinting. Um, and I think just improving force production, that might work. It's similar to like an amateur athlete with lifting weights. If you improve force production, you're going to see a lot of things go in the right direction, right? But once we get to a certain point... Uh, in order to move the needle, we have to, I think, dig a little deeper into some of the things we've been talking about in order to, to, to find improvements and to make things work. And it makes me very uncomfortable uh, when I see people talking about force production and sprinting 
um, as being like the end all be all. Like if you produce more more force, you'll go faster. Never mind like the vector that you're doing it in or how you're applying it or anything like that. And I just find that like very very interesting. I don't know, like maybe this is me going to spiel, but <laughs> but I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that, like either from a sprint perspective or even from what we've just been talking about about at some point like there's we see diminishing returns in force production. Where do we go from there? For sure, you know, I definitely not my area of expertise, but from the outside in, I would say you know if you are a sprint coach and you have you know some form of assessment where you can identify that athlete's weakest link where is there a threshold where improvements in force production capabilities doesn't improve maximum sprint performance potentially and i think you could also see yeah i'm sure you know he could still get some value from putting more force into the ground but there's so much lower hanging fruit from a kinematic standpoint of just body position that if you do that you might see more return on his ability to yeah move. yeah i just it's 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 interesting to me because it's like I, I don't mind looking at it from that perspective because at the end of the day it is true like if you put more force on the ground that's great but there's just so many ways we can make that happen as opposed to just like I feel like if we tell the athlete like put more force force around everything just becomes like a hammer and a nail for sure you know and like sometimes that's not the way to increase force production you know and it's just it's just interesting to me yeah sorry <laughs> it's no a little worries. bit of a little bit of a tangent but anyways that's why we're here um I did want to talk a little bit too, and this is where we're going to go after auto-regulation, a um, little bit of force velocity profiling. I think we, you just even kind of touched a little bit on like, where is the athlete not particularly strong at, and do we hit that thing, or do we double down on what they're good at? I think force velocity profiling is like a perfect kind of example of that. So I know you've done a little bit of like dabbling in the research there and everything. What are your kind of overall thoughts on that? And um, you probably even get into practically like what we're going to do, you know, coming up here, like for sure. I think just conceptually, it's a great way to see, you know, how your athlete produces force over a variety of loads. I think early on when all the research was coming out, I was just fascinated with everything VBT. And, you know, I was one of those like VBT can cure everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, even before we dive into the specific applications of force velocity profiling, I think, you know, it's important to have the right context with what you're trying to do with anything VBT related. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things, one of the mistakes that I made early on was falling into this belief that you could just prescribe, you know, general velocities between athletes and assume that it's a similar intensity for that athlete. And I think, you know, each velocity, you know, every athlete has their own between exercise and, you know, between individual their velocities might be different at a certain intensity and especially at different training levels where I think you truly to get the most out of it have to be as individualized as possible which is why I think doing a force velocity profile and finding that athlete's velocities at certain intensities is going to be the best way to go for that Um, specific to the use case that we have with this athlete here we tested an amateur athlete last week, and this guy was bouncy as all hell, jumping 30 inches. 32, yeah, 32 yeah. inches, yeah. 32 off the drop vert. But one of the things that you could see is that, you know, from the video of the drop jump, he spends an eternity on the floor. And talk about, you know, similar to the CMJ paper, he requires such an extensive amount of range of motion to be able to get out of that jump. So for someone like him, who also happens to be incredibly strong, his focus is not going to be 
you know, maximum strength or maximum force production. This kid produces an incredible amount yeah. of force. Max strength is not his issue, but he needs to be able to move lower loads at higher velocities. So that's where something like force velocity profiling comes into key where it's you can test this kid off a spectrum of athletes. And if you just one RM him, you might say, all right, well, he only improved his one RM by 5%. But if you have, you know, 20%, 40%, 60%, and 80% of his 1RM and velocities at those loads, then you can see pre and post if he's actually able to move those loads at a faster pace. Any faster, yeah. yeah. Now, the parameters for this you mentioned even, like I know we have like kind of like on the continuum, you know, what is it, absolute speed, speed strength, yeah. strength speed, all the way up to max strength. Um, the prescribe the prescriptions I've seen in terms of velocities at each of those junctures, or is that something you're kind of looking for in every athlete? Um, obviously, you're going to you're going to profile them and see where they live, and then the goal is to get them to kind of those prescribed numbers. Or do you find, find, feel those numbers are a little bit arbitrary? So it's tough. Where like again, you have to do whatever works best for you. And if you're in a college strength room and you have fifty athletes and you cannot one RM them then you can lean into some of these general velocity zones that have been in literature. There's a couple of papers out in Journal of Strength and Conditioning where you know, they show that you know, 60% of your 1RM typically tends to fall around one meter per second. And if or you should, right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you can you know, use these general speed zones because the one thing we do know is that there is this inverse relationship very strong between load and velocity. So, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, you know, if you're at 0 0.2, 0 0.3, you're pretty close and you're giving that athlete a strength stimulus and you could still, you know, adjust the load based on how they're doing it. For sure. But ultimately, the most precise way to do it, and this is why in some senses it's not that practical, but the best way is to get a 1RM or a 3RM. You find their minimal velocity threshold, so you know, all right, this athlete on the trap bar deadlift, his 3RM occurs at, you know, 0.2 eight meters per second. Mm -hmm. And then you work back from that and then you know you'd say eighty percent of his one RM occurs at point three five or you know, these numbers are not gonna be right, but you know, point <laughs> four five and you get up and it's like all right, sixty percent's around point eight, fifty five's around, you know, point nine. And now you know for that individual, then you can say, Okay, I have his velocity at, at uh, what his one RM was, and now I have these velocities across the spectrum. So relative to his 1RM, I know that 60% of his 1RM is about you know 0.57 or something like that. And it's what's great about load velocity profiling is within individuals, those velocities are reliable. So rep to rep, day to day, you can know that that speed, point, whatever that number is for that intensity for the athlete, is giving you a good representation of the intensity. Yeah. But you can't take that same speed and apply it to a different athlete. For sure, yeah. So you have this profile, you prescribe training for six to eight weeks, you give them the same loads, and then you're able to see, okay, you move this same load, you know, 0.8 faster. And then you can see across the spectrum how they're improving and mm -hmm. you can prescribe your training more yeah. effectively. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's great. I um I I do you find any any limitations to it at all? Um, obviously, obviously, like you said, initially you thought it was kind of like the end all be all and anything like yeah. that, everything like that. But like, what are, what are some potential limitations to it? I mean, before limitations, I think 
one of my favorite things about it is its ability to minimize fatigue. So I think irrespective of if you have a load velocity profile, you can implement velocity cutoffs so you can be more precise in like the actual load you're giving the athlete. I think the biggest limitation of it is that to be precise with your intensity prescription, which is a big thing for VBT, if you want to be know the exact intensity that you're giving an athlete, you have to have a 1RM or 3RM load. All of the research that's coming out looking at these different predictive equations where you do 40% and 60% and it gives you a 1RM, then it's great research and it's where we need to go, but it's the further away you get from that 1RM, the less easy it is to predict. The less accurate yeah. it is. Yeah. So the fact that you, you know, let's face it, most strength coaches, especially at elite sport, are not comfortable putting their athletes under a 1RM or 3RM. And I, I do think there is a way to get a lot out of it with without you know going to that threshold. But you know, to get the most out of it, you need this individualized velocity profile. Yeah. And you know, it's also time consuming. Also time consuming. I was gonna say in a large group, I could feel see that. And we, I think you mentioned it even like it's kind of hard to to be able to get that. But here we have the luxury of being able to do it. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it's more difficult here where. I think something like BBT actually works best in a college setting where, you know, at UT, they built a, this beautiful brand new facility. And again, Justin Thiel did a great job of, of putting everything together, but he has five gym wares across the racks, mm -hmm. a strength coach and an intern on each rack. And you have each athlete in the cloud where it just flows, where you get data. It's a good point. If you have the maxes, then you can you could do that quite easily if you have the tech, yeah. which is the other the other piece, right? And it, it stores automatically to the cloud, and it, it's just kind of integrates smoothly. Here, you know, every athlete's and and typically there's a theme for the day where in college everyone's doing the same lifts, where you're not organizing different you know gym aware positions for different lifts for different athletes. For sure. Where yeah. here. You know, you have eight athletes in a session. Everyone's doing, doing a completely different. different session. Yeah. You have three, four strength coaches. You know, how much time can you put into setting up a gym wear? For gym sure, wear? for sure. No, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so if you have the tech in a larger setting, it, it definitely could work. I didn't even think about it in that, in that manner, for sure. Um, now, what do you think about... Um, this is something when I came to P3 that I had a lot of questions about, and I feel like you guys have answered them great. And I, I just kind of want to almost like have someone else or have the listeners kind of get a feel for it. I feel like one thing I was always in, unsure of how to go about is establishing a reliable and repeatable assessment process um, and knowing what was valuable in an assessment process. Because, you know, I, for example, like the FMS, I've, I've dabbled in that before at some places where I've like run the show. It's I've never, I've, I'm like, okay, I've collected this data. It's not really telling me a whole lot. Like it's not really getting me anything. Like so, I just not do it. So in a lot of cases, like there was very, I did very little assessing because I didn't feel like any of it was useful. Um, here, it's completely changed. I knew there was something out there that would be useful. I yeah. just, I'd never come across it. Now that I'm here, I know that what we do here is extremely useful to me, and it's really shaped a lot of like my programming, newfound programming decisions over the last like month or so. Um, so it's just kind of curious. What go, what you think should, and I know you haven't officially like set up this, but what yeah. you think should go into like someone, let's say they're a strength coach at the D3 or D2 level and, and, and they're kind of on their own and they need, they're looking for something to streamline and do. What, do you, what would be your recommendations to start establishing that? Like what is useful and how do you go about like implementing something like that? 
For sure. I think that's a, a great question. And again, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and act like I have all the answers, but you know, I'm more than willing to you know, share my personal um, perspective on the matter. I think it starts with, again, it, it's going to have to start with your budget and realistically what you have in front of you. But you know, outside of the budget thing, you know, if you have one sport or one team or multiple different teams, you want to ideally have multiple assessments that measure independent physical qualities related to that sport in the shortest amount of time. Mm -hmm. And when you start to look at different pieces of technology to measure these different qualities, the first thing that you're going to have to look at is the reliability of that measurement, where you're going to have to know, you know, day to day, rep to rep, what's your error? What's your range? Because if you, you know, if you want to see a change in a metric, you have to know what the noise is for that metric. Where if you want to improve your eccentric rate of force production or your peak eccentric force and your error on that metric is 4.5% and you see an improvement of 3%, it's not improvement. It's within that error range. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the repeatability, the reliability, understanding the error rates for each metric so you can develop expectations for how much these things should be improved and then ultimately you know the validity as well are you measuring you know the target quality that you have in front of you and then once you you know you have the tech you have those numbers then it's you know just kind of experimenting from the practical side like how you see these qualities you're measuring in the gym how do they relate to um, the field so outside of you know that's like more like setting up a lab specifics in different pieces mm-hmm. of technology. But, you know, I think one thing P3 does a great job of is it's like, you know, get a vertical test, get a lateral test, you know, have some stationary jumps where time's not a factor, try and add some reactive component, try and see how athletes produce force in different planes and, you know, take it from there. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's great. And, and yeah, I mean, I think, for me, it's been extremely helpful, like I said, just to kind of see everything, the same process being done for everyone that comes through the doors so that we know kind of where they live and where their weaknesses are, whether what they're good at, and then make our best, you know, guesses from there, yeah. right? The other thing I did mention, too, is um, see different ends of the force velocity spectrum as well, where it's like a lot of movements we do tend to be, you know, unweighted high-velocity movements, and sometimes you might miss if an athlete's need is you know on the force production side of things where they may be able to fly but you give them an external load and they get buried yeah. so again it's you know seeing where the needs are from a kinetic and kinematic standpoint and you know along this force velocity yeah spectrum. yeah and, and i think the nice thing is too is like a lot of places now are getting force plates and I mean, a lot of the stuff that we have here is not uncommon, other than the 3D. But, but uh, you know, it's not uncommon to um, a lot of college settings now, for example. Like, Definitely. I have a lot of buddies that now have that stuff, and they're slowly kind of learning how to use it. And I think it tells us a lot of cool stuff. So I think the, on- the other thing, and I think this goes across the entire field of sports science as a whole, and I'm, again, I'm not saying this to be some pompous person, but I'm saying this from personal experience. <laughs> It is so easy to get lost in the data where you, you, and I remember the first time I had catapult set up at UT when they were saying it's, you know, you get like a hundred data points per second and I loved it. And then I got a spreadsheet with 50,000 numbers and I was like, 
what do I do with this? Yeah. So I think coming into this, if you're in a collegiate setting or if you're just getting started or whatever you have, select a couple key performance metrics from each test and then you know keep it as simple as possible. I know that this metric is a good look into this quality. And if you just have five metrics, that's great. If you have five reliable, valid metrics that measure independent qualities, that's all you need. Yeah. It is funny too, like a year ago, you could have told me like, you know, something about impulse or something like that. I'm like, well, I don't see the point in that. And it's like, I, I kind of almost had to discover it myself as opposed to like when I came here, I feel, feel like one thing, and this is for like listeners, I guess, who might be younger, like looking to like break into whatever, you know, some aspect of this field, like when I got here, not only did I spend time with you guys like asking questions and observing, but like I took Matt Jordan's force plate course and like I, rather than like have all of you tell me like these are the things that matter, which you did. And like I took that to heart, like it was as I've developed more questions, I started to realize why some of these metrics make more sense and why they're important. For sure. And it's almost like my own self-discovery, even though you guys were like you could have told me something six months ago. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But like now, like all of a sudden you tell me that thing based off a question that I'm having. I'm like, oh, this makes a lot more sense now. You know, <laughs> like, and it's, that's just that path of self-discovery as opposed to like relying on 50,000 data points. Yeah. <laughs> I went, uh, I went through the same thing. I'm still going through it. And, but you know, ultimately everything is governed by the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I wish I studied more in college it's something my advisor told me to do and being in college with a heavy course load i i ducked additional physics courses yeah. and now i'm staying up late at night after work trying to do that and i think you know it has to be the right time for you to want to look at something exactly like that. you can't you can't force some things like if it's not in your wheelhouse like we were talking about this earlier today me and me and john and it was like uh something about how one some internship requiring you to like know like our programming and yeah. i was like I tried to learn that last year because I knew it would be valuable for me, but like, I just don't give a fuck about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I just don't care about yeah. it. Like, you know, but I can there, try all I want, but... <laughs> there might come a time where... Yeah, in, in five years, maybe it's all I care about, yeah. you know? Like, you never know. I doubt it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I guess, like, that brings me to, like, the overarching point. I think a lot of people, when they ask me about here, they're like, oh, it's data-driven, like, so great, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of data here, and it certainly helped, but I feel like it's... Rather than let it like just dictate to me everything that's going on, I'm letting it kind of inform me as opposed to like I just look at a sheet, it tells me what to do because this is what the data said and then I do that thing. For sure. Know? And um, I feel like some people like want all these quick, easy answers and data driven is a great way to like, if you believe in that, it's a great way to just kind of do what it's telling you and not use your own intellect. But like, I feel like here, like I've become more data informed, yeah. you know, like I now have some reasoning behind some of the choices that I'm making where before, like I was making choices that may or may not have been good, but it was way more subjective. hundred percent. I mean, it's not a, it's not a plug and play scenario exactly. where yeah. there's, and that's one, like I'm definitely on more of like the, you know, sports science end of the spectrum than the, you know, actual strength conditioning coach mm -hmm. side of things. But I have the utmost respect for every strength coach that I work with. And it is an art and a science. And the last thing I'm going to do is say, this is what this data point says. I need you to do this exercise with this athlete. Yeah. Because you have an experience and an understanding that is very different from mine. And I think what where the field is going, what we try and do here, where it's like we just try and dance with it. Where it's like, hey, here's what we're seeing. 
Here are the limitations to these metrics, to these assessments, but here are some key needs that we think need to be developed. For sure. And then we're gonna you know, leave it up to you to take that as you see it and you know, then use your own expertise to try and develop those qualities and then we just circle back. Yeah. The level of like conversation we have here too is is all like the one we had today about the athlete we just referenced with the force velocity stuff. Like, you just don't go a lot of places and you're able to like dig that deep and get kind of granular on things. And it's it's certainly helpful because I come in with a hunch and then you provide a lot more backstory for me with the data. You know, it's it's a a very special place to be, and it's what you know keeps me up at night and keeps me excited is, is those conversation i'll tell you what it is fun like i'm not gonna lie man i'll talk to you know talk to a girl or something like that out here in beautiful santa barbara because <laughs> i mean you know it's the way it is and they'll be like what do you do and like you'll tell them like oh that sounds cool and you're like maybe you're talking on a sunday like man i am dreading going to work tomorrow and i'm like i can't fucking wait to get yeah. to work tomorrow like i'm really like i'm not even like pretending like i've i've yet to have a bad day here so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that and yeah it's uh you know, every field and aspect has its own pros and cons, but in the end of the day, I, you know, I'm on the same page where I get to come into work with like-minded people and, and study how to make athletes better. Yeah. And there's also, you know, as you were just saying, like there's personal development that comes with it as well. And especially yeah. in, a, in a place like P3 where you're on your own game from a research standpoint, from a physics standpoint, from biomechanics and strength and conditioning, where it's like, everything is being improved at the yeah. same time. Yeah, it really is, man. Jake, um, where can the people, uh, where can people find you on social media? If you want to give that out, feel free. I'm, uh, I'm not super active. I, I tweet a little bit. I think my, my Twitter handle is, is JT Roush. My Instagram is more, you know, me just, you know, talking about meditating and hanging out with friends and, and playing golf and <laughs> who knows there might be a time where i start putting more stuff on there but yeah i think twitter's probably the best place to get at me uh jt roush and if you want to see any of the papers that i did a poor job explaining um, stop <laughs> my, my research gate profile has you know all the papers I've been fortunate enough to be a part Awesome. Of. Well, I'll link that in the show notes for sure, man. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jack. I actually, I had one question for you. Um, P3 is in the process of, you know, setting the foundation to put out its own podcast. And, you know, being from your perspective of going through it, starting from scratch, do you have any, you know, do's and don'ts for the early stages of a podcast? Um... Yeah, if you, I think if you know the direction you want to go in and from our discussions previously, I think you do. Just make sure you have enough ammo lined up in terms of guests that you don't run out. And I would say too, like, and I think you're already kind of doing this, like record three or four of them with like other guests that are outside of P3. If it goes well, now you have a little stockpile of episodes to, to kind of work with. So that way, if you're, uh, once you put it out there, I would say the biggest thing is being consistent. Like, if you consistently put something out on the same day every single week, or you know every single week, the same day we get to get a release, people become accustomed to that. It becomes part of the ritual. They start listening. You never really lose listenership, and you can only build on it from there. I'd say that's huge. And then also, I guess too, finding a, a place to house it would be very important. So I use like Anchor. Um, it's free, which is great. But like, if you want to do it, like I know we have a website, like you'd have to find a podcast host to like link up with the website and have it come then and off the website. Um, Anchor doesn't do that. So you'd have to find like what works best for your situation. Like, do I want to attach this podcast to my, to the P3 website? 
or do I want to just kind of have it be a standalone thing that only goes through iTunes? Then you can use something like Anchor, and it's it literally just sends it right to iTunes via the what's the RSS feed, um, and that's the way it goes. So like production, direction, and then uh, just basically like how am I going to distribute this thing out are the three big things. So you yeah. know the man. Thank you very much, dude. Thanks so much for coming on. This was fun. I don't get to do one like face to face very often either. So this has been a ton of fun. This is cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I of course, it. man. Yep.